The following presentation is part of the six-week Introduction to Mindfulness Meditation class offered at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome back, everyone. And I think it's appropriate to appreciate the fact that we are together on this sixth week of our Introduction to Mindfulness class. I mean, one of the things that everybody gets about life is we're not in control and things keep happening and you can see that the size of the group has shrunk over these six weeks and maybe people felt like it wasn't the right thing for them. But for a lot of people, it probably wasn't that. It's just that life intervenes and uh, life is challenging, and there's just this basic, I'm sure you've seen this in terms of our actions in life, there's this basic sense of inertia, like it's hard to change what we're already in the habit of doing. I'm sure you discovered that just in terms of putting aside 5, 10, 15, 30 minutes, 45 minutes to practice every day, it's not easy. They've done a number of studies, uh, psychologists, about change, like human beings changing routines, changing ways of being, ways of thinking. So we have to, it's important that we have a real sense of respect for the challenge. Like, it's not enough to recognize that, you know, our, that mindfulness is a good thing or being distracted has, comes with consequences. We have to, uh, you know, through the way we reflect or think about it, we have to build up a motivation coming out of compassion for this life. Like, it's really important. I mean, in a funny way, and the Buddha wasn't afraid to pull out this card, in a funny way, it's dangerous not to be mindful. I mean, it's not funny, but it's not normally how someone would sell the mindfulness practice. That you'll die if you don't practice. <laughs> but, all silliness aside, it's true <laughs> in the sense that not being mindful sets up, increases the probability of all kinds of difficulty in life. There's so many things in life that we just can't control. But we can cultivate being more and more present, more and more mindful, and it makes a big difference. Remember, one of the reasons we give up on the practice is we, even though we've heard it a hundred times and, you know, from the instructions we get from our teachers, that practice isn't about me getting something, me getting a good, beautiful meditation experience. Although maybe that happens from time to time. People have really nice meditation experiences, really pleasant, beautiful mind states, for example. But that's not the point. The point is to be free with the experience that is arising, the mind and body experience that is arising for us how to be free with the life, the experience, 
as it is, not how to get the life I've always wanted or to get the life that I think somebody else has that I'd like to have. You know, I want to be like the Dalai Lama. Well, that's a setup, that's called a craving, and it's a setup for suffering. Wanting to be the Dalai Lama when we're Mark Nunberg, it's a setup. But when we see another human being, could be the Dalai Lama, could be our best friend, you know, but when we see a being at ease with their life as it actually is, then that can, it can occur to us like, oh, I can be at ease with this life, with this experience as it is. My heart, my mind can open and relax and allow the way it is to be the way that it is. So in a sense, not adding anything on top of the moment, not adding tension, like the Buddha calls this the second dart or the second arrow. Naturally, through life, we're going to get poked by experience. Some experience will be really difficult. Some experience will be really beautiful. But our habit is when the experience is both difficult and beautiful, is we poke ourselves. When it's difficult, we poke ourselves by wishing it weren't this way, which is a very, that's a, that can be a very heavy state. Like, I don't want it this way. And when it's beautiful, we don't want it to change. But that's also a heavy state. Not wanting things to change in a world that's constantly changing is stressful. It is no problem with things constantly changing. But not wanting things to change when they're changing, that makes it stressful. And that's something we can do. We can do something about that. So tonight when we sit, remember that we're... Um, not trying to get a nice experience. We're trying to be free in the experience that's arising in the body and the mind. How might this heart, this mind, be free? Not adding stress, not responding or relating in a stressful way to this experience of the mind and body. Is there a way to hold or a way to open to this that doesn't add complications, doesn't add tension? For example, we could be sitting here, maybe we had a hard day, thinking, boy, I can't wait to get home tonight. I mean, this is a very normal, natural thought to have. Can't wait to get home tonight and really be done with the day. But even in a very subtle way, that can be creating stress in the mind because all of a sudden this moment is in the way of it being 9.30. And even though mostly we're unaware, doesn't mean that the heart isn't getting tight because this isn't what we long for, what we'd really like. So a couple of things uh, to take home, sort of summaries of the practice. One is the practice, if somebody asks you, if you ask yourself, if you're clarifying the practice for yourself at the beginning of a sit, you can just remind yourself, this meditation may be very pleasant, it may be very difficult, but my practice isn't to make it one way or the other. The practice is to be free, to practice being free 
at ease with whatever experience does arise in the sit and then for the rest of the day. If we want to be free, we have to practice being free with the life that we have. This is really the cause for suffering, isn't it? Everybody wants to be happy or free or whatever you want to call it. But some people think the way to be free or happy is to make things a particular way for me, and then I'll be happy. And that is the path of suffering. Trying to make life a particular way when we're not master of the universe is stressful and frustrating. And even when things happen to go our way, we get tight not wanting it to change. Or you could be a person who wants to be happy and then because of maybe some pointing out by a wise person like the Buddha, okay, if I want to be happy, if I want to be at ease, if I want to be free, the heart unshakably free, then maybe I should practice being free at ease with the way it is right now. See, it's a different strategy. One is, I want to be happy and free, so let me make the reality of my life different than it is, so I can be free. So what we've just convinced the mind, what we've just reinforced in the mind is, I can't be happy now, because it's not the way I think I need it needs to be in order to be happy. Or, we could be practicing being at ease, being happy, so to speak, with the conditions as they are. And I know it sounds counterintuitive, like when we have knee pain, or we're sleepy, or the body hurts, or the heart hurts because of loss, or anxiety about something in our lives. And somebody says, well, can you be at ease? And you say, no, I can't be at ease. And you think it's sort of the end of it, you know, like black or white, no, I just can't be at ease. But like if there is something that's hard to bear right now in your life, some anxiety, let's say about money, How am I ever going to retire? Now, you know that with that idea, like how am I ever going to retire, you could whip up a lot of stress. It could be, in moments at least, really unbearable as you frighten yourself by imagining certain things, bringing certain things to mind, right? Or it could be mildly stressful. Or at other times, it's not an issue. But the fact of how much money you have in your bank hasn't changed. So, I'm not saying we shouldn't save for retirement, but what I'm saying is that what the mind does with the present moment, how it relates to the present moment, is relevant. It's as relevant as what the present moment is. In other words, the biggest thing in any moment of our life is how the mind is understanding or how the mind is relating. We think the biggest thing is, I'm a 55-year-old male who lives in this place, who's married, who's got these responsibilities and this sort of personality. But much more relevant is, what is the mind doing with that? That experience, that information. Like, am I taking it personally? Am I embarrassed by it? Am I proud of it? How is the mind relating to the sensations, to the thoughts? And the wonderful thing is, 
that's something we can actually do something about. No matter the conditions, how we relate to those conditions is always at play. All that is required is that the mind remembers that that's at play. That how this mind right now is relating is uh, open. And if we're unconscious, if we're not mindful, then we're going to relate in the way that we're most in the habit of relating. Grumpy, grumpily. You know, some of us are just grumps. Some of us are like, you know. But if we don't observe how we're relating to the moment, we'll never learn what actually is liberating. Like what way of relating is in the direction of real happiness, real freedom. So in tonight's sit, we'll, I'll break it down into three chunks, just uh, covering some of the practices we've been doing. So the first part, maybe the first ten minutes or so, we'll do the formal loving-kindness practice. Now, in any sit that you do from now on, you might want to take, maybe not ten minutes, some days maybe more than ten minutes, but at least a few moments to look at your attitude, the attitude of the mind, and to bring up a good attitude. So we'll be doing the formal loving-kindness practice as a way of transforming our attitude. You may already have a really beautiful attitude right now, in which case you can just build that up, make it even more beautiful, or you may be a grump right now, and then this will be your opportunity to transform that attitude as we do the formal loving-kindness practice. But even if you're not doing the formal loving-kindness practice and you're sitting for your sitting down for your daily meditation, take a few seconds at a minimum, check how the attitude is, the quality of the attitude, and find different creative ways to to strengthen or to develop a really good attitude. And we all, I mean, this is commonsensical. Our attitude is not fixed. It's like, you know how it is. The moment you notice that your mind is grumpy, it's kind of funny. When you have some space and you just see the mind being a grump, and then as soon as you, in a sense, laugh at your grumpiness, you're not grumpy anymore. That's such a simple, easy way to shift one's attitude. The only thing that makes an attitude set is the not noticing that it's an attitude. And we think it's me. I'm mad. I'm irritated. Well, that's not going to shift because there's this sense of personal investment. And one of the things that when we're taking something personally, the thing that's most threatening is inconsistency. Have you noticed? It's like when we're really caught in a self-drama, we demand that the self is consistent. Because by definition, me, you know, I can't be just one moment this way and another moment that way because it's inconsistent with the sense of self. The sense of self has a sense of permanency. Like, if this person violated my trust, I can't possibly be happy, you know, seeing a, a nice cardinal and hearing it sing. You know, because this person violated my trust. I'm the person who's feeling violated right now. You know, cute little cardinal, don't bother me. That's 
So, because I, I don't really have the space or time to have a moment of appreciation. Because I'm the person who... So there's this mostly unconsciously imposed consistency with our attitude. So when we take those few moments at the beginning of the sit, we begin with the premise that the attitude is not fixed. And the thing that really loosens the attitude up more than anything is to notice it's just an attitude in the mind. To have that relative sense of whatever... Now, you're not judging the attitude. like So you notice that sense of violation. You're not judging it. You're just noticing... Like, if from a point of view of space, spaciousness, that big perspective, you're just noticing, oh, this is this attitude of being, this person violated my trust. And it's like this. And it, it's like, we could immediately have compassion for ourselves. That's not as easy to laugh at, something like feeling violated. But we could easily like, oh, that's a terrible feeling. That hurts. That violation really hurts. I care about that. And you see, immediately, the attitude in the mind has shifted from a sense of being a victim and angry, maybe rageful, to compassion. I care about this pain of having been violated. I really care about it. Now, in a sense, the heart is the one who cares instead of the one who's violated, the one who's angry, the one who wants revenge, or whatever it might be. So don't forget that piece. You know, you settle down, compose the body as best you can. And then you might even want to establish like a a simple routine. How's the mind doing? Just start the sit with that question. How's the attitude in the mind? Or how's the mind doing? And then anyway, like often the creative means for shifting the attitude in the direction of what's wholesome is just to remember... I care about this life. We talked about this a little last week for those who weren't here. I care about this life. So tonight we'll do that and then we'll go right into the formal loving kindness practice for 10 minutes. So you get, if you haven't had a chance, hopefully you've had a chance to explore that practice. But if you haven't, we'll do it formally tonight. Then after 10 minutes or so, we'll shift to the regular breathing practice. And initially with the breathing practice, We'll really use the anchor. So the attention may wander from the breath, but when you notice that it's wandered in a gentle but persistent way, just keep coming back and really explore the possibility of consistency, continuity of attention with the breath. So the mind, the attention rather, it's unbroken, at least for periods of time. There's no wavering in the attention. The attention's going, like if you're feeling the breath here at the nostrils, The attention is simply knowing that touching as the air goes in, that short break, and then the touching as the air goes out, that short pause, and then the touching as the air comes back in. Same then if you're feeling it as a movement in the abdominal wall. You're just that you're tracking the sensory experience of the breath moving in the body. But you're not using tension to maintain the continuity of awareness of the breath. You're using an actual interest. That's the work of this middle part of the practice. Can you cultivate, develop, and sustain an interest in the primary meditation object? Still, you're going to lose it. You know, the mind will wander, get distracted. As soon as you can, 
in a moment, just notice what the mind is doing. Oh, the mind is worrying, it's like this. The mind's judging, it's like this. The mind's not liking the pain in the knee, and it's like this. So you're just naming or acknowledging or knowing what the mind's doing as soon as you can when you've been distracted. Don't rush back to your primary object. Just take a second or two. Acknowledge the distraction for what it is. And then when you can, in an elegant but persistent way, then remember, oh yeah, body sitting is like this, breath moving in the body is like this, and let the attention rest down on the primary anchor, like maybe hear the touching or hear the moving. Some people in the group are using the whole body, that's okay. The anchor doesn't have to be a refined or specific thing. It could be something general like the body sitting or hearing. Not hearing a particular sound, but hearing all the sounds as one thing in the moment. So whether you use a general anchor like hearing or the whole body sitting or a specific anchor like the breath at the nostrils or the breath in the abdomen or wherever it's easy to track the sensations of the breath, we're returning. And that, don't worry about how many times the mind wanders. Be more interested in how gracefully, persistently, the attention can come back. Acknowledging the distraction and returning. Acknowledging the distraction and returning. That's the work. It's not like, oh, I got distracted, I blew it. No, that's what happens. That mind does get distracted. Then the question is, well, how does the mind relate to the distraction? Does it immediately judge itself? Does it immediately not care that it's distracted? You know, that's not useful. To not care about it or to be angry at yourself. That doesn't help. Neither of those help. But just to acknowledge, oh, being distracted is like this. This is a moment of being mindful of what it's like for the mind to have wandered. And it's doing this, knowing this. And it's like this. And the body sitting's like this. And the next breath coming in is like this. And going out, it's like this. And remember, in this part of the practice, it's really okay to use a meditation phrase or word. Something as simple as in, as you're breathing in, and repeating the word in your mind out as it's going out. Or you could use words that support the quality of the mind we're developing in this part of practice, like knowing as you breathe in, releasing, as you breathe out, because the knowing is reminding the mind to be alert, to be interested. And the word releasing is reminding the mind to be relaxed, to just let things be. And then the third part we'll do for, you know, the last ten minutes or so, we'll call open attention practice. And I've talked about this. Now your, your mind may still keep coming back to the breath because you've trained it to do that, and that's okay. But now you're not intentionally bringing your attention back to the breath. If it comes back to the breath, fine. If it doesn't, fine. Whatever object is being known, wherever the attention goes, is fine. The question is, can you track what the attention is knowing moment by moment? This is being known. That could be, you could actually use this phrase in your mind as much as it's useful. If you don't need it or if it's not useful, don't use this language internally in your mind. This is what's being known. This is how it is. Can this be okay? So phrases like that, from time to time at least, can just resettle the mind in this open attention practice 
where, as best we can, the mind is tracking what the mind is doing. So here with open attention, we're very interested in what the mind is doing, what the mind is knowing, how the mind is relating to what it's knowing. So we're just knowing that. What's the mind doing? What's the mind knowing? Is the mind tight or relaxed? Is the mind kind or impatient? Is the mind big or narrow, tight? So we're just interested. We're not interested in judging the mind. When the mind's really tight, we're not interested necessarily in even changing it. We're just interested in it. Oh, the mind is tight. It's like this. Well, can that be okay? What is it? What happens when we relax with alertness to a tight mind? What happens to that tight mind? What happens when we get interested and relax with a beautiful mind, an expansive, calm mind? I mean, generally what you'll find, and you can just confirm this in your practice, that when you're noticing in that relaxed and clear way an unskillful mind, like a tight mind, it undermines the tightness. It's hard to be unskillful, to have a negative mind state, when you're mindfully aware of it. Try it sometime. Next time you're enraged, you know, and you bring that calm, clear, wise attention and see what happens to the rage. It can't really be maintained for very long when the mindfulness is strong. And when you're mindful of a wholesome, beautiful mind state, it actually expands. It becomes even more beautiful. So I invite you to check this out. Any questions before we do our sit tonight? Come to mind, and we'll have time to check in afterward. So, nothing to bring up, then let's just stretch out our legs. Feel free to stand for a minute if you'd like, so that you'll be comfortable sitting for about 30 minutes, whatever you need to do. Make sure you have the cushion or whatever supports, blanket, that will help the body be comfortable. give instructions during the loving-kindness practice, but for the last two parts, the place where we're more focused on our anchor and then the open attention part, I won't give very many instructions so that we'll have more silence time, silent time tonight. So we begin by <clears throat> relating kindly to the body. Like it or not, this body, in a sense, is our vehicle for this life. So in a kindly way, we inhabit the space of the body. And we're willing to be sensitive to how the body is now. You may even want <clears throat> to... Take a couple of long, easy breaths in and out. And we take our time breathing in and out. 
eventually will let the breath continue on its own. Having a felt sense of this life right here, this body and mind. And you can repeat the phrase, I care about this life, a couple times, or something like that. Then I'll offer the traditional phrases and... You can repeat it silently after I say it out loud. May I be safe and protected in all ways. And may this heart be happy and peaceful. May the body here be healthy and strong. And may I take care of this life with ease and joy. So feeling the heart center as we continue. May I be safe and protected in all ways. May the heart be happy and peaceful. May this body be healthy and strong. May I take care of this life with ease and joy. May I be safe and protected in all ways. May this heart be happy and peaceful. May the body be healthy and strong. And may I take care of this life with ease and joy. Just continue on your own for a few more rounds. So you're feeling your heart center, you're repeating these phrases, and feel free to adapt them. And remembering this life right here.
just keep coming back to this repetition of the phrases and try to connect with the meaning of the words each time. Each of these phrases is a simple act of generosity, sending out our good wish, in this case, to ourselves. And feel free to continue just sending these simple loving wishes toward yourself. But if you prefer, bring to mind somebody who's easy to love. In the practice, we call this the easy person. So somebody who, when you bring them to mind, the heart naturally relaxes and naturally cares and loves. So you bring the person to mind. So there's a felt sense as if you're visualizing or right there with the person, with the being. And then practice sending out each of these four wishes or your own version of them. May you be safe and protected in all ways. And may your heart be happy and peaceful. May you be healthy, may you be free from pain, and may you take care of life with ease and joy. Just continue on your own.
really enjoy, appreciate each phrase as you generate it in your mind. It's really a simple but beautiful gift to offer somebody the wish, may you take care of your life with ease and joy, or any of these wishes. And we can end by broadening or widening the circle. So just as we care about this heart, this life, just as we care about our dear friends or easy person, recognizing that all living beings wish to be safe and happy. So just as I wish to be happy, may all beings, all those here in this room, all my friends and family, even the difficult people in my life, may all beings without exception be safe from harm. Have happy hearts, peaceful hearts, healthy body. May all beings live with ease and joy. Just continue for another minute or so. Having a sense of all beings. Just noticing the quality of the mind now, the quality of the attitude in the mind. Feel the body sitting. And when you're ready, let the attention go to the anchor that you've been training with, the breath or whatever it is. Remember the two important qualities here are interest and trust, allowing things to be. Noticing how the kindness that we've generated It works, it's very useful in the mindfulness practice as we kindly, relate kindly to the breath coming in, kindly to the breath going out, and kindly to the distractions that arise.
easing out unnecessary tension in the mind and body. Remember, the work is the work of being interested in the object of meditation, interested in what is present.
this middle part of practice, be interested in the arising steadiness of mind, the balance, balanced, steady, and beautiful qualities of the mind that arise whenever the mind gets really simple, knowing the breath coming in, knowing the breath going out, returning whenever the mind has been distracted. And the transition to open attention practice can be gradual, simply by becoming more and more interested in what interrupts the continuity of attention with the meditation object. So to actually be interested in the interruptions. be interested in the interruptions, but also to be interested in the mind that's knowing the breath or knowing the meditation object. Is it a narrow, tight mind, or is it a relaxed, expanded mind? Agitated or calm? Is the experience that's being known, does it seem, appear to be personal? Or does the experience being known have the appearance of just nature, impersonal nature, causes and conditions coming and going? So we're just noticing, is it personal? Or is it just natural nature?
Remember, it's okay for the attention to go back to the breath or your anchor. Just notice that. It's like putting on a shirt that is very comfortable, that the mind knows well. Keeping it really simple. What's the mind doing? What is the mind knowing? Recognizing this is being known. This is how it is, this mind. Can this be okay?
time, you might want to stretch out your legs a little bit. Whatever you need to do to feel comfortable. Would you turn the top two lights up a little bit brighter? Not all the way, maybe halfway, each one. Thanks. We want to share a little information before we end at 9 o'clock, but it's 8.30 now. It'd be nice to check in, and we, you know, we can't check in about everything, but we've, some of you I know have been doing walking meditation. might be nice to bring that up if anybody has any thoughts or questions about walking meditation. Hopefully a number of you did some of the formal loving-kindness practice, and if you noticed in the handout, on the loving-kindness practice, there were phrases that were more what we call metta, which is the basic goodwill, friendliness of the mind, than phrases having to do with compassion, phrases having to do with appreciative joy, phrases having to do with equanimity. These are the four emotions, the only, actually, the only four emotions we need. Not that we'll be so lucky, but really, as a human being, we could get away with just compassion, kindness, joy, and equanimity, and be a very functional human being. Um, talk about open attention practice. Talk about working with a particular anchor or meditation object and sustaining attention with that and experiencing the kind of stillness and peace and calm that comes with that continuity of attention with the meditation object. So lots of things we could check in about. This is the time to ask questions or just to share what you've been learning in practice or what's been challenging in practice. So what comes to mind? Yeah. Is Johnny? Yeah, and this is this is partly how we realize that things are impersonal. It's like who we are, like how we show up in the world, is a function of so many things, including protein or pro- potatoes, <laughs> let alone all the other elements that make this the way that it is. It seems so personal, but it's not personal at all. You know, genetics. What's personal about genetics? What's personable personal about where we were raised, who we were raised by? It wasn't like, you know, we went through some cosmic buffet line and chose, you know, I'll take the little bit of that kind of genetic tendency and that and these sort of parents and this sort of culture and, oh, it's just stuff happening. Yeah, thanks, Johnny. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah, no well. Just 
stressful six weeks ago. I'm at work and the state and I work in healthcare, the state is there watching every move you do and have to be at your utmost being and for everything perfect. I got sleep. I ate food that is good for me. I practice, find myself standing looking at brownies going, I care about this way. <laughs> you know, and I don't do that very often, but I actually did it once and I was like, wow, I kind of chuckled and then I, I do. And the more I thought about it, you know, I but there's other times where you just take a bite and don't think about it. But just the fact that it's starting to kind of creep it, creep into my lifestyle, how do I least expect it? And I'm able to handle a work day so much to the point where I can see another co-worker in the med room going through a stressful situation. And I, I was so aware of that. And this also, it points to something you've heard me mention over and over again in different ways, how impersonal everything is. A more palatable term is, it's all just nature, impersonal causes and conditions happening. And the tendency of our thinking mind is to personalize, like we conceptualize that it's personal. But it's not. And it's same with mindfulness and developing wisdom in life. That's also natural. It's nature. It's a natural unfolding of causes and conditions. When we plant seeds for mindfulness, then mindfulness is what sprouts in all kinds of moments of our lives. Like you explained, Noel, we're not like, okay, I want to be mindful now. No, we just, the mind finds that it's being mindful. But that's not a random occurrence. That natural arising of mindfulness is the way it sprouts when seeds are planted. So when you sit, like in a formal meditation time at home, and you put in your 30 minutes, you're literally increasing the probability for moments of mindfulness to naturally arise throughout the day. And then, of course, when you notice those moments of mindfulness, that also reinforces it. So... A lot of the, you know, what spiritual practice is more than anything, it's planting seeds. It's like being a gardener. We're planting seeds by studying, by hearing the talk, by making the effort to bring the attention back and to simply know the next inhalation or know the next exhalation. We're planting seeds. And, you know, it's like when you plant enough seeds, there's going to be some things that are going to grow. It's just going to happen. In the same way, if you don't plant any seeds, 
I guarantee whatever has happened before will continue happening. It's like whatever we've done before is what we'll, we'll do in the future. Because there are no new seeds planted. So what else could happen but the tendencies that the mind already has acting themselves out again and again? So if we want to change the trajectory of our lives, we have to plant new seeds. We have to make the effort to plant seeds. That's the getting yourself to class, sticking with the class. That's the getting yourself to sit five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, thirty minutes every day, coming on retreats. That You're just planting seeds. And before you know it, it's really hard not to be mindful. It's like you may want... Now, you, you may prefer, like, I really don't want to be here, but you can't help it. The mind is just in the habit of showing up and being mindful. And it's great, actually, even though sometimes it's difficult, but it's really great when that happens. Because it may not be pleasant, but that's the situation that allows for learning. There's no insight unless there's mindfulness. It's the proximate cause for the deepening of understanding. There's no deepening of understanding without a mind being awake. You can't be on automatic pilot and learn. <laughs> it just won't happen. All that happens when we're on automatic pilot in life is we keep doing the same thing and getting the same results. Thanks for sharing that. Other examples or questions? Yeah. Yes. Um, Say your name. My name is Don. Yeah, I mean, the more the better. For years and years, I did uh, about three hours a day. Uh, but I had, you know, the life that allowed it. And then I've been on retreats for a long period of time where I could practice most of the day, if not the whole day that I was awake. Um, and it has, it really has tremendous benefit. The more we put in, the more we get out. But but more than the actual time is how you're practicing, the quality of the practice, that's really important. Because let's be honest, we sit for 30 minutes, let's say, like we did tonight. Even tonight with the support of being together, which probably makes her sit higher quality. How many moments were we actually really there in the moment? I mean, if we were really honest, I don't know, what? Somewhere between 2 and 20%, right? I mean, that might be accurate. I mean, maybe some of you had a really great sit, and you were really there. The mind was really aware, awake, for more than 20% of the time. But that would be unusual. Because it's just so easy to be lost in thought. So that quality. And the other thing, Don, that's really helpful is to, uh, like, a, and I'll talk about this for the last 15 minutes tonight, about this integration into daily life. But what really builds the momentum is when we can start to transform more and more of the day, not just the formal sitting time, but more and more of the day into practice. Now, how do we do that? So one thing you can do at, in your formal practice is make the last piece of it, even if it's just a few minutes, very much like daily life. So open your eyes, for example, if they've been closed. And 
Don't use any meditation crutch like a meditation anchor. So you're just a human being sitting, you know, eyes open, ears open, sensing sensations, aware of thought. And what are you doing? What are we doing? What are we interested in? Why do we practice? We're practicing to be free with experience. So there you are, a human being sitting, seeing, hearing, sensing the sensations, aware of the thoughts, and intending to be free. And we don't know how necessarily to be free, but we can notice when things get tight and entangled, right? And we can simply do that correlation. Well, what was the mind doing that might have encouraged or have supported the entanglements, the heaviness, the reactivity? And then other times we're just sitting there and we're feeling really light and free. And then it just begs the question, well, what is the mind doing that's supporting this lightness, this nimbleness, this happiness, this kindness, this joy? So it's just the observing of the mind, not controlling the mind, but just this radical, neutral observing of the mind and learning, like when the mind does this, this is what gets set in motion. When the mind does this other, relates in this other way, this other thing gets set in motion. And that we can actually do all day long. I sent you a sheet, uh, I think it was the first week, it's like 33 words of it, uh, phrases of advice from Saida Utejaniya. Saida Utejaniya. Saida just means teacher, and U is like mister in Burma, in Burmese rather. And uh, Tejaniya is the name of this uh, Burmese monk, wonderful teacher. Hopefully I'll be out practicing with him when he comes to the States in uh, May of this year, of next year. But anyway, he did a lot of his practice just in daily life. He was a monk and then he disrobed and he got married and became a small businessman. I think they had a little shop, you know, where they sold drinks and stuff like that. And uh, got depressed and <laughs> been all the way through marriage, raising kids, having a business, getting depressed. He practiced. He just practiced. He kept practicing. Eventually, in Burma, it's a little different. It sounds bad to say that he left his family and became a monk again. But in Burma, it's like, you can't be cooler than a monk. I mean, that's like the thing to be a Buddhist monk. So the family was very supportive of his decision to become a monk. He's quite famous now as a teacher. He teaches all over the world. and uh, But he's really into this continuity of mindfulness of the mind. Whatever you're doing is less important than are you aware of what the mind is doing. And if you can maintain that thread of interest, what is the mind doing? How is the mind? Is it tight or expansive, heavy or light? Is it taking things personally, or is it seeing things as just a movement of nature? These kind of questions he would recommend, like that's how you sustain this mindfulness of the mind. Because it's not our habit to be interested in the mind. The mind is such a ephemeral, space-like thing, it's really hard to be interested in it. It's relatively easy to be interested in the body, but even that is not our habit. You know, we're totally interested in what's going on around us. We can be completely oblivious to our body. But as hard as that is, it's even harder to be aware of the mind in any kind of continuous way. But with practice, we can train the mind to be interested in the mind. So that whenever the mind is in a fit, you can't help but there be mindfulness that knows the mind's like this now. This is how it is. 
And when the mind is in a beautiful state, like when is the last time your mind was clearly aware of your mind being in a really good place? Now, guaranteed, we've been in moments where the mind's been in a good place. But how many times have we actually been mindfully aware of that? Like, what is it like for the mind to be in a good place? Relaxed, clear, loving. It would be really good to be mindful of that state, like how beautiful, how wholesome, how pragmatic or uh, practical that state of mind is. Like, it's really effective. It's easy to be a functional human being when the mind is in that state. But because we're not aware of how the mind is, we miss how dysfunctional some states of mind are and how functional other states of mind are. So there's no learning. It's like, it's like random, like what state, and we never learn our lesson. So we could be rageful for much of a day, but because we're not mindful, we don't realize how destructive and dysfunctional it is, to some degree at least. Or the mind could be in a really good, expansive, nimble, happy place, and we're so effective, so functional that day. But if we're not mindful, we don't make the connection. So it really matters, this mindfulness of mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Johnny. Well, any thoughts about it? There are times when you really do need to analyze and assess something. Maybe if you're working on this, you need to measure the board or whatever. How do you go about the way to be mindfully aware when you're actually analyzing and assessing stuff? Yeah, it's just harder. You know, it's just like it's it's harder to sustain mindfulness when we're in a conversation with another person. Because the, the social interaction, the mind is even more deeply than it is to take like sensations personally or sights personally. But the social interaction, it just feels so personal. Like, how am I doing in this interaction? What do I think this person thinks about me? What do I think about that person? This just, this, uh, dualistic me and you, notion, self and other, is just so seductive. And it's the same with other sort of problem solving. We we tend to take that very personally, and it's not as easy to be mindful. So we generally, we train, as a kindergartner would, you know, we train in a way that's really easy, and we develop our skill and our confidence so we can be mindful in things in time, at times when it's not so easy. When basically, when there's a lot of cognitive processing going on, the cognitive processing appears to be very personal. It appears to be very personal. And so it will be harder to sustain mindfulness of it. There is somebody, uh, Gregory Kramer, you can look up his work. His uh, website, I think has Meta, maybe even Meta.org. Um, but he's a teacher from Portland, and he does mindfulness retreats, but instead of sitting quietly, you do a little of that, but you sit in dyad, sometimes groups of three, and you have structured conversations, but you're practicing being mindful. And so he teaches like pausing, uh, learning how to let go of physical tension, like different ways in interactions <clears throat> to sustain a sense of awareness or wakefulness as we're interacting, as we do, or solving problems or planning. Because... Actually, there is nothing that we can do that we can't be mindful of. It's just a matter of how strong the idea is in the mind that this is personal. See, when we think something is personal, 
it doesn't occur to mind to be aware of it. Like if I'm ruminating about some problem in my life, it feels inappropriate for me to be mindful of it because it, it seems that I am this guy who's ruminating. But what mindfulness reveals is, no, you're not that guy who's ruminating. Ruminating is just something being known. So in a way, there's a little bit of a war, two identities, in a sense. The identity is, what should I do about this? And the identity, this is something being known. Or the reality, I could say, we could say, this is something being known. Ruminating is being known. And so, we have to learn, this is our our refuge, more than anything, more than wealth, more than friendship, more than physical health, our real refuge, actual refuge, more than any gated community will be, or any big SUV will be, or any sort of money hidden away will be, or good health will be, the real refuge is this movement of mind that can step out of the moment, the attachment or identification in the moment, and recognize, oh, this is how it is. This is being known. Yeah, awareness itself is perspective. And even when you're doing like a serious planning or problem solving or interaction, you may not be able to sustain awareness through that, but you can punctuate it with moments of awareness. Like in a heated argument with your partner, for example, which I experience sometimes with my wife, is like there's a pause, you know, when somebody stops talking, and you can let your mind go to that space of awareness that knows, oh, it's like this now. Now, you might get sucked right back in and identified with the emotion that's strong in your heart in a moment, in a second later. But that's okay because now there's the sort of the resonance of that wise knowing that it's just something being known. And the more you know that, the harder it is to forget that. It's like there's still drama, but it's almost like space begins to interpenetrate all the tight spaces of the mind. They still get, it's still tight, but it doesn't seem quite as tight. It's almost like the tightness has a transparency or a porousness to it. I bet you experience that anyway. I mean, this is, remember, Buddhism is just human common sense. It isn't really its own religion or its own belief system. Any human being, whether they've ever bumped into the teachings of the Buddha, who has enough balance and not overwhelmed by life, is going to at least slowly develop the skill. When we hear the teachings of the Buddha and really take them up with vigor, then what we're doing is we're just amplifying what is a natural process of awakening. Awakening is a natural process when the human mind isn't overwhelmed by suffering. When there's enough space that the mind, the human mind can be reflective. Oh, this is what's going on. And then the teachings are basically saying, yeah, really notice that reflective capacity of the mind and build on it. Take it as a refuge. It's your only good friend. A mind that's not reflective is literally hell. And a mind that has cultivated this reflective quality to the nth degree is a very, very happy, liberated, peaceful, loving mind. You cannot be angry and mean and have cultivated reflectiveness. There is no, it's in, it would be, it's a kind of insanity to get lost in anger. 
And it only happens because we all get lost in anger because we're not being reflective. If we actually saw it, like if you were behind, you know, one-way glass, observing, you know, somebody in anger, not really in a tight, angry place, you know, you would be moved. Like, oh, that poor guy. Or if you saw yourself, like somebody played back a videotape of your being and really lustful or really angry, you know, it would be like, oh my God. But because we're so identified when we're in those negative states of mind, they can continue because there's no awareness of the way that it is. So it is awareness that is our true refuge. I mean, this is the one thing I'd like more than anything because if someone said, or maybe it was Noel said, it's like a computer virus, you know, it gets an infection. If we get infected with this understanding, it's really hard to shake loose. It's like, once the mind, it's, it's true with almost any skill, once the mind knows how to do something better, it's really hard to forget it. And in this, you know, we're learning how to do life better by being awake, being reflective, meaning the mind knows it's like this. Of course, of course we're already conscious, but is there a mindful awareness that it's like this? It changes everything because can't help but learn when there's that reflective awareness. Oh, it's like this. So before we end, we have five minutes left. I just want to review the handout for week six, which you got last week. And there are just some nice tips for this integration, because as I was saying in response to Don's comment, you know, ideally we want to practice 16, 17 hours a day, all of our waking hours, because then, of course, the benefit will be amplified by how many moments of mindfulness there are. And even, you know, we're not really going to practice 16 or 17 hours, but we'll practice for a moment here and a moment there through those 16 or 17 hours. And those moments add up. Because a moment of mindfulness, like I just said, has a certain resonance. Life works better. And it's unforgettable to the mind. The mind sees, oh yeah, this really helps. So a couple things. One is, the biggest danger in this practice is forgetting it. So that means the most important thing is, how am I going to remember to practice? Now, some of us overdo it. We kind of play this heavy-duty parental card, like practice. And we'll do what any rebellious teenager does. You can't make me practice. (laughs) So remembering to practice is not wagging your finger at yourself. You know, you should practice, you idiot. It's finding some thread, some teaching that really resonates. It could be a line from a poem or a line from the Buddhist teaching. Like, there's so many wonderful, pithy statements. Like the Buddha once said, something like, uh, the supreme liberation has been discovered by himself, you know, by in his practice. Namely, he says, namely, liberation through non-clinging. So it's such a pithy statement. Liberation through non-clinging. Happiness through non-clinging. Just just remembering that the whole, the essence of the practice is not attachment, not clinging, not grasping to the conditions of the moment. In other words, being free with the way it is. So that would be 
a way to remember. Some of you know Ram Das. He got me and so many of us started in the early 70s with his book, Be Here Now. I read it a little bit later. Um, but anyway, uh, <clears throat> he was a Harvard psychology professor who then got fired because of his experiments uh, with LSD and uh, continued a spiritual path, went to India, met this great uh, Hindu teacher, Neem Karoli Baba, very famous, he's dead now, famous teacher back then in the 60s and early 70s. And he had to leave India to come back to the States, and his teacher gave this great little pithy statement that you can remember, never throw anyone out of your heart. Now, just a statement like that, and you could expand it maybe, never throw anything out of your heart, because it's not just people we throw out of heart, like, I hate this life, I hate this situation. I hate this center. I hate this practice. Then we can remember, oh yeah, never throw anything out of my heart. Well, how can I include this? And if I'm going to practice that, you know, that reminds me, well, maybe the answer isn't to throw it out of my heart. Maybe the answer is to find some way to include this. This is the way that it is now. This situation, this person, this is the way that it is. So maybe instead of throwing it out of my heart, I'll include it. So the first trick is you got to remember and you gotta, like, write that pithy phrase down and put it in your pocket so each time you put your hand in your pocket, you remember, oh yeah. Or put it on your computer screen or put it on the wheel of your car so that you see it sometimes during the day. And you're basically bringing the teachings and the practice into different corners of your life where it might, you might not otherwise do it. Like, there it is next to your toothbrush, that little, you just put the word M, you know, for mindfulness. You know, just, a for awareness or something like that. And you just remember, oh yeah, this mind has the capacity to be awake. Well, how about now? You know, what would it like to be awake as I'm standing here at the checkout counter? You know, checking out the person next to me or, you know, worried if I'm ever going to be able to afford what I'm buying. So just to wake up, oh yeah, this is what it is to be a human being in this moment, to have a mind and body. It's like this. Can it be okay to be radically present in an ordinary moment? Yeah, it's okay. So just the, the thing is that we have to remember it. Then, I won't go into the other, but you'll find that these six or these five steps that I listed in this week six handout, things you can easily do already, but you just have to do it. It's just like ways to play with your daily life that will infuse it with mindfulness. So I encourage you to look through it. And just pick one or two from the list and then do something about it every day for a while. And then look through the list again in a few weeks and choose another one of those five things and do something about it. This is, goes back to what I said at the beginning, a good way to end tonight. You know, when we do, when we intentionally do something, everything from that moment on will arise out of having done that intentional thing. This is how we change things. When I intentionally bring my attention back to the present moment, like from being caught up to the moment of reckoning, oh yeah, just been judging, just been planning, just like this. That movement, that intentional movement to be awake, to be aware of what the mind is doing, that changes the mind stream. Like now, the next moment... It's the mind that just did that. If I didn't do that, it wouldn't be the mind that just did that. Do you understand? So 
the future, like who we are, how we're going to be in the future, is being put together based on what the mind is doing right now. Every time we come back to the present moment, that's the planting of the seed. So doing something about the practice, coming back to Common Ground for a weekly practice group on Wednesday night, Sunday night, Sunday morning, this is sort of the main event here, where there's a guided sit and a talk about practice and a group discussion. Just doing that changes your life. Sitting in the morning or evening will change your life. It plants seeds. Coming back to the present moment as you're walking from your car to your office will change your life forever. Because now this mind is the mind that was aware of walking from the car to the office. And you can't change that. Right? It's like the, we, the mind is the cumulative or the cumula- accumulation of all the intentional actions that have ever been done. That's what this is, this mind. It is coming out of the past intentional actions. That is the force or trajectory of this mind. It is nothing other than the past. We can never, the past is completely gone, right? There's no way. But what there is something here, and this is the accumulation of the past. So what's the, the future will be what we do with the past now, right? This is the past, how I relate to that. Awake, or caught up. That's the one move we have. We can be awake to this, or we can be lost, identified with this. If we're awake to this, it changes the trajectory. If we're once again just lost, identified, attached to what's going on, we're just perpetuating the current trajectory. So I'll leave it there. It's a little bit after night, so we need to end here. Um, if you haven't looked through the newsletter, take one on your way out and just see what might make sense. Please use the center in a way that helps your practice. And don't be shy about connecting with me after programs or even from time to time setting up a one-to-one meeting if you think it would be helpful in your practice. Well, you're welcome to take the class again and again. If you start doing some retreats, you're welcome to do the Buddhist Studies class. But most people in the community just come to the weekly practice groups and do retreats from time to time. That's the the general way. Work on developing a daily life practice where you work at your practicing throughout your day. Work on developing a, a daily or almost daily sitting formal sitting practice. Start doing retreats in a way that makes sense in your life. And continue your study. For some people, continuing your study just means coming to a weekly practice group, if not every week, often. Having good friends who practice is as important as anything. You can get that here at the center. Join one of the community groups, which are small groups, sometimes around reading books together, sometimes affinity groups, people of color group, or a mental health practitioners group. I mean, there's almost 20 different groups in the center, and they're generally around 10 people and it really helps develop friendships with those small groups. It's been really great being with you all. Good luck with your practice, and I'm sure I'll see you down the road. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.